Listeners should be aware there may be spoilers. Maybe I don't want to be a, what? a bad guy. No, no, no. We'll always be bad guys. Welcome to Editors on Editing, the podcast in collaboration with American Cinema Editors and Pro Video Coalition. I'm Glenn Garland, and I'm joined by John Benson and Jesse Avnera. John has edited such excellent animated films as The Lego Batman Movie, Storks, Flushed Away, and South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, while Jesse has edited Disney's Animated Us Again, Sesame Street, and Myth, A Frozen Tale. Now they have collaborated to bring us one of the most high-octane and joyful animated films of the year, The Bad Guys. John, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed the movie. It was such a blast. It was so much fun, and there was such great energy. It was wonderful. Thanks, Glenn. appreciate that. Thank you. And thanks for everyone tuning in to listen to Jesse and I talk about the most invisible of all the invisible arts, animation editing. (laughs) Jesse, John, how did you become involved in this project? Well, you know, it's interesting. I came to DreamWorks in 2018 to cut a completely different movie. And we were well underway when there was a regime change at the studio. And all of a sudden, I found the movie I was editing no longer was a movie. And so the producer, Damon Ross, went to Pierre Parafil, who was the co-director of the other project, and let him run with the idea of putting together a trailer, which I'd never done before. And so Pierre storyboarded an entire trailer, which he then gave to me to cut. And it was amazing because Pierre had such a clear idea of the tone and the feel of the movie. talked about the music as being Guy Ritchie-esque from Snatch and Soderbergh's Ocean's Eleven and Out of Sight and a little Mission Impossible, all rolled together with a Tarantino coding. And I just was so excited because DreamWorks had never done anything like this before. And I think you guys succeeded in that because it it does have a feel of all those different movies. The studio felt the same way about the trailer we did. And so they instantly greenlit the movie and we were off and running. I had a second editor, Marissa Horowitz, very talented. And she ended up getting snapped up to be a lead on her own show at another studio. And I found myself very sad and alone When Jenny McCormick of Ace, the wonderful Jenny McCormick, said, you need an editor? How about that Jesse Averna guy? And I thought, oh, we'll never get him. He's at another studio that he'll (laughs) never leave. So Jesse, when I called you and begged you to come work on the bad guys with me, how fast did you have to say, no, absolutely not? (laughs) Well, I mean, just the thought of working with you, John, I've been a big fan of yours for a long time. Oh, stop. Stop. Not just professionally, but as a human, you're an amazing person. But what talked me into it, John, was seeing that uh, trailer that you guys cut. It just blew my expectation, even in boards. And when you said it was storyboards, so it wasn't animated. It was a series of different boards that you connected in sort of a dynamic way. Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with what it is to be an animation editor, the headline is we edit the movie first and then we shoot it. So it's exactly the reverse of how you're used to making a film. I was on Bad Guys for almost three and a half years. And the first two years we spent in storyboard form. And we just went over and over and reworked the story and reworked the story. 
The script would get boarded, which is drawn by a team of storyboard artists uh, led by uh, Nelson Yokoto, who's very talented. And they do the first pass of the script, which gets sent to us, and then we go through and record temporary voices for the whole movie. I did Scratch for Snake and Shark. Jesse did Wolf every once in a while. And we put that together along with a full sound effects pass and music. And then we sit down and watch it. And storyboards on live action are more designed to convey what the camera is doing. Whereas in animation, you're getting all the acting, the camera work, and basic editing in the composition. And then it's up to us to cut it. And we're determining not only cuts in the traditional sense, like going from a medium to a close-up or a wide or whatever, but we're also using editing, cutting from individual drawings to convey timing and facial emotion change-ups and how long it takes a character literally to walk across the room and sit down. We're timing that all out using storyboards. And how do you know if it's a still frame, or maybe it's not a still frame, how long to hold on a shot if a character is going to cross the room? Or, for instance, you guys have several amazing car chase scenes. How do you know how long to hold on a shot because you don't quite know what it's going to look like with the car turning the corner or something like that? I imagine the finished shot in my mind, and I time it out based on how long I want the shot to be on screen, as if I were cutting footage that had been shot. And we have the ability not only to determine how long each individual cuts are, but how long it takes action to happen. If we want to upcut things and really accelerate things, I just hold on the boards. And working with the storyboard artists are great because you can say, oh, hey, you know, I need another expression change after that. Or... I think we're too tight on the shot. Can we redo this as a wide shot, effectively asking for new coverage as I'm editing? It's really a sense of having complete control over everything. Hmm. And then if you perform it at a certain speed, but the actors come in and they're performing at a very different speed, or are they trying to create the same cadence that you guys created in the storyboard phase? No, we conform to their performance. They're the next layer of bringing realism and the emotion of this character. So their performance causes us to re-edit, to shape it again. Sometimes, like you said, it can be radically different. Sometimes I'll think a joke works slow and then we'll get the performance. It's like twice as fast and so much funnier. It's kind of a dance back and forth. But my take is always, especially for first pass, clarity. Does it make sense? Do we understand it? Do we care? And then from there excitement. Because if I time something that's just scratch voices, the second I put sound effects in, I have to retime it. All of a sudden, a shot that felt long, now that it has actual sounds in it, it feels fast. Or score can change the entire feeling of how that moment works. So in a sense, you guys create different drafts. And then as you put on more and more layers, it informs the pace. Yeah, I would think that's the case. Jesse makes a really good point, which is you might have a joke that's working really well in Scratch, but once you record Sam Rockwell, you're a fool <laughs> if you ask Sam Rockwell to match what we did in Scratch, because <laughs> you know there's a reason he's an Academy Award winning actor, and I'm not. Yeah. But you can give your actor's context, oh, hey, you're in a big room, or you can't see each other across the room. Those types of things are helpful in just general pace. We go to the recording sessions, which is the animation version of going to the shoot. 
like on this film, rather than recording each actor in isolation, which is typically how we do it in animation, we actually got to record Sam Rockwell and Mark Marin together, or Sam Rockwell and Aquafina together. And they really did a lot of improv and played off one another. And so you end up getting something that feels kind of more spicy and of the moment. And that causes you to have to kind of rethink what you're cutting. And you're not just watching it in isolation. You're sitting down with the whole crew, the whole story team and the producers and the director and a lot of the animators and the writers. And we all watch it together as a group. And then we try to be really honest with one another. Is this working? Is what happens in the second act set up properly in the first act? Do we care about these characters? And I don't suppose it was difficult because these characters are so endearing, but the whole premise is that we are now getting behind bad guys, guys who are more unsavory, who mm. rob from the public, and they do things that scare the public. Was that ever a challenge to get people to identify with these characters? Actually, that was. I think that our very first pass... The wolf had like a little bit of an aggressive edge to him, which kind of made it hard to get behind him because you have Snake, played by Mark Marin, who is really grouchy. And so we realized quite early on that we needed to make sure that wolf, as grouchy as Snake was, that wolf was as charming. So then that way they balanced each other out. And we realized that we could have them stealing, robbing a bank at the beginning of the movie, but ultimately pay for the crimes and not like get caught and get punished, but from an internal position, evolve as characters to realize we did a bad thing and we actually have serious regret for that. I think one of the smart things that the movie does right from the onset is it shows that the guys have compassion for each other and care about each other. I think that that mm. uh, allows the audience to be able to cheer for these characters when they're doing things that you shouldn't be cheering for because you see that they do have a heart and that there is something deeper there. But yeah, I think Wolf in particular, he's hard to shape because you don't want him to come off cocky. It's more of like a clever kind of got it together, but it can ride the line where it can start to seem unappealing. Yeah. Sam's performance, he just nailed it to where we still care about this guy, even though he might be doing things we don't want to cheer for. He's very likable. It almost seemed like he was channeling like a George Clooney type that can almost get away with anything because they're so charming because of Ocean's Eleven. Maybe that was something that was inspiring him. But I also feel like whenever he starts getting a chip on his shoulders, his buddies take him down a notch. Mm. And there are also times that, like you said, if he's doing something where it seems like I'm in charge and I'm the boss, then there's something that happens that takes him down a peg. And a lot of it you also see is an insecurity. I mm. love how you have that scene very early on with Governor Foxington, and she describes the bad guys as, you know, I feel sorry for these guys. They're just insecure. And it's a great twist. And you see the bad guys' reactions. They're like, wait, what are you talking yeah. about? We're the baddest guys in town. What are, you feel sorry for us? How dare you? And so that immediately makes you feel for them because you realize that they're coming at it from how society has always seen them, which I think is an interesting yeah. thing. Yeah. that you guys are playing with. We were born a certain way and everybody looks at us this way. And so we just end up that way yeah. because that's what you guys see. No, I'm so glad that comes across in the film. Obviously that's where 
We put so much of our energy. Yeah. We, we figured that if society was judging them fairly or unfairly, that it would force them together as a group and they become a, a de facto family. Wolf and snake as like the parents and tarantula and shark and piranha were the kids with Aquafina being the older sister. And so mm-hmm. when Snake and Wolf are fighting, you see the other three get really nervous, like, oh, no, our parents are fighting. And whose side are we going to choose? And- yeah, exactly. And so I think anytime you're telling a story, specifically for families, but really for a, a lot of storytelling, if you can boil things down to the familial relationship, it becomes instantly relatable. I think, too, there is a lot of opportunities for them to be rude or mean to each other, and it's really not there. They'll pick on each other like a family does, but it always comes back to kindness. You can tell that they still care about each other. There's a lot of love. Really, the bottom line of the story is, are you bad because society tells you that you're bad? How much of it is a personal choice, and how much of it is predestined because people judge you ahead of time? And Mm -hmm. if you do decide to change, what does that mean to your friends who have been with you the whole time? If you go good, but the rest of your friends don't want to go good, where does that put you? I had to lose my friends in order to get Jesse my new friend, so. There you go. (laughs) That was the contingency I gave him. You have to ditch all the rest. I'll ditch all my (laughs) other friends, Jesse. So the characters reminded me a lot of the Warner Brothers cartoons Mm. and even the Looney Tunes, especially in the Mm. eyes. Was that a conscious thing? Well, uh, first of all, that is an enormous compliment because I worship at the altar of Treg Brown, the editor of all the original Looney Tunes cartoons. So I I think my sensibility in timing really comes from the Robert McKimson and Chuck Jones and Frizz Freeling Looney Tunes cartoons. So I hope we do. In terms of a conscious decision on the side of Pierre, I I think that he was really influenced by uh, European animation because he's from France. For me, it was the pace because it's fantastically fast paced. It's always moving. And those Looney Tunes definitely had that kind of pace. I think the movie does something interesting where it straddles between having like real physics and consequences and weight it's not just zipping around, but then there's moments where things can squash and stretch and become more cartoony. I see it dancing between both of those. I agree with that. There's times like when Wolf saves the cat that you spent time and you really feel a lot of emotion in that sequence. It's a beautiful moment and you do take your time with that. and It does feel very real. Thanks. I I will tell you that scene was an exercise in how much we could take out of the scene. It was a storyboarded by a really talented storyboard artist named Catherine DeVries, who really kept the staging pretty simple. We had music and sound effects for clawing as he climbed up the tree, and there was a little more back and forth. And when Pierre saw it for the first time, he said, can we make this more of a quiet scene? And so I started stripping out the music and we kept pulling out music all the way into the very end. I was on the mixing stage. We had like three pieces of music and then we went to two. And then ultimately we landed with just one piece of music for when the cat really finally does come to him. And I'm really glad that you picked up on the contrast of the film because 
obviously when you're doing fast-paced comedy or fast-paced car chases, when you have moments where you take your time, you really do feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It becomes kind of a lean forward moment. Like, oh, something's different. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because you guys even start the film with one long shot. <laughs> you stay in a single frame that pulls back. It could be a very clever Scorsese shot from Casino or something like that. And you're just holding on these two characters talking. And then as they start to exit the diner, you reveal the customers hiding in the corner. (laughs) And they don't do anything nasty to the customers, which I think is Mm -hmm. good because it establishes that people are afraid of them. But these guys do nothing. They're just having breakfast. Right. And then you cut to this car chase sequence. And because you took your time in that one shot, The car chase sequence is so visceral and so fast and so much fun. And it's such a contrast from what you guys established in that first shot. Oh, great. Well, first of all, thank you. That's a really lovely compliment, Glenn. Our original version of the movie began with them robbing the bank, running out of the bank and doing the car chase, all five of them together. And it launched the movie like a cannon. It was really exciting. But when we got to the midpoint of the second act, we still felt a little detached from the characters. And Mm. we didn't really understand, like, okay, it's five of them, but what's their relationship? What's the dynamic? And we tried a different version where it was all five of them introducing them one at a time in the bank heist. But that felt a little baggy, like we lost the shot out of the gate. But Pierre went back and realized that he really needed to have a moment where the audience could sit with Wolf and Snake and understand a lot of things about them in pretty quick fashion, that they really had great affection for one another. And he pitched the idea of them sitting in a diner like the beginning of Pulp Fiction. So by the time they burst out of the bank, we understand who our two main characters are, how they feel about each other, how the world feels about them. And you realize money isn't really the point for these guys. They're robbing the bank because it's almost like thumbing their noses at society going, ha, ha, ha. Mm. And you see all the way through that car chase, the money is just flying out of the window. They don't care. (laughs) When they make it back to their secret lair, all the money is gone because that's not the point of why they steal. It's the joy of being together and pulling heists. And then when you talk about introducing these other characters... It's done within the car chase. So we're racing around and suddenly Tarantula will join in and you'll have a quick flash to these storybooks and cracking safes and hacking computers. There's these little flashes that give a bit of context to their characters in a very efficient way. It almost sounds like that might have been something that was being done in the bank heist. That was something we had to really pay attention to in what order we introduce people and also making it feel like in meeting them is all part of the heist. Each introduction, each character does something different to help them get away. So that was something that we spent a lot of time on. Essentially what makes animation amazing for me is that the movie originally started in a bank. There was a heist. All the characters were introduced there. But after watching it and trying it, Pierre decided, what if it's in a diner? And what if the introduction, instead of being in the bank, is during a heist? You can do that. That's exciting. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes that's done in live action, but 
very rarely because yeah. it's very hard to get the actors back. But with animation, you can constantly rewrite the script as you're going and really get to the essence of what is best for the story. I remember I was working with uh, Dana Gould. Oh, good old Dana. Yeah. On Stand Against Evil. And Dana had worked on The Simpsons for years. And so when we were cutting, he would constantly be going, I know that we can't go back and reshoot some of this stuff, but how can we change things up in the edit to get at the essence of what I really mm. want to say? And so he was using his animation background to reverse engineer some of these scenes. And it sounds like oh, yeah. with animation, you guys have that ability at your fingertips. Yeah. And actually, I think probably now would be a good time to clarify just really quickly the stages we go through. So like the first two years were pretty much storyboard, which is you rewriting and rewriting and re-storyboarding and watching the reels. And then you go into layout, which is where we actually do a first pass of shooting. It's layout or previs and we have digital mannequin versions of the characters with limited animation but we shoot it with real virtual lenses so a 50 millimeter is a 50 millimeter and you you go through and you basically recut the movie a second time but now with shots that you can actually execute and around that time you typically record the real actors that usually happens partway through the storyboard but into layout and then once everyone agrees okay that scene is right it then goes into animation and that's really really where the life comes into the film. Then once animation is finished, we go into what's called lighting, which is the final stage where it's lit properly, the effects are integrated, and it's pretty much the version that you see in the theater. And you kind of think of animation as shooting the movie because in order to change things at that point, it starts getting really expensive because you have a team of like three to five animators on a scene and they've worked hundreds and hundreds of hours of time. And so it's it's a big deal if you end up changing at that point. I would just add that animators being the other side of the performance, not just the, the voice, but actually creating the physical performance mm -hmm. instead of the character necessarily saying something. What if it's a look or... You know, all of a sudden there's a life to these characters that we didn't really have with boards and layout. So it can still even then continue to change. Sure. A character hunched over as opposed to walking straight tells you what they're feeling inside. So I think that these animators yeah, have yeah. to be actors as well. well. It is true. Wolf is really two different people. It's Sam Rockwell performing the voice, but then it's also, I think Ben was the supervising animator for Wolf. It's so it's like the body and the voice or the soul and the body. Right. But it's really interesting because the animators will key on little vocal performances that we've shaped. And, you know, a lot of times when we're cutting Wolf Frankenstein lines together that don't exist in the script. Right off the bat, I can think of one that you made that ended up being one of the funniest parts for me. <laughs> They're doing um, different exercises with marmalade to become good. It's essentially good training. And so the idea is to walk an older lady across the street, that that's an act of kindness. And Piranha, totally not in character, says, oh, yeah, yeah, I do this all the time. <laughs> and it's just so funny because that didn't exist. It was from somewhere completely different. And it becomes this complete genuine thing. It's just such a great character moment. It's really funny because that scene was in an original 
old, old, old version, like a year earlier. And we showed the movie to an audience and they said, we'd like it, but it feels a little short. And we needed to add one more beat. So we dug into the box of deleted scenes and found that crossing the street scene, but it had been conceived for a different version of the movie. And so it was still a little too short. And Pierre had said, God, it would be great if you could throw in something where we could just get another laugh in here. And so I was thinking back, there was another scene that got dropped from the movie where they were talking about going to Bad Guy Beach. Oh, yeah. There was just a throwaway line that uh, Anthony Ramos did where he was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I do this all the time. And this is where we get to talk about how having amazing assistant editors oh, yeah. makes or breaks your movie. Yes. <laughs> Laura Minto, our first assistant editor, along with Tom Scott and Stephen Castro, what a dream team of assistant editors. They yeah. would take all the production dialogue, including improv, in between take comments, and these guys transcribed everything. Mm -hmm. So all Jesse and I would have to do is go into the bin and we would search for, I couldn't remember what scene that was from, but I remember I do this all the time. And so I did a quick search because Laura had, God bless you, Laura Minto, had broken her fingers typing so much. I was able to call up that bit of audio, work it in. Everyone loved it and it went right into animation. And this was like an hour. When you have days like that, you think I'm really earning my salary. They're not all like that, but well, and I mean, something to point out too with editorial and animation is that not just doing the work yourself, but also we become the hub for all the material. So different departments will send things to us, we'll add it to the film, and then we'll send it back out. So it's constantly in motion, constantly being worked on, being iterated. And so the needs are not just for the director to review, but it's for, you know, this needs to go back to layout and this needs to go to tech anim. It's a constant in and out, in and out, in and out. Because you have so many different artists sending in different things at different times. Right. Yeah. Yep. Trying to keep track of all that. Yeah. Yeah. So the editing room really becomes almost like a mixture of a standard editing room, a production office, the set. Because it's all virtual at that point, we would have our production designer or the art director come in or the storyboard artists or the surfacers or the riggers or animators. They all come in and we watch the scenes together in editorial. Mm -hmm. And then when you're recording with the actors, do they just play off of the script or do they look at what you guys have animated up to that point to be inspired? It can be both. Like sometimes we'll bring material with us to help the actor know what's happening and where and to remind them about the character because recordings can happen over these years. But other times we can't really make the scene until we have that performance. Some things are necessary to hear it done by Sam. It's kind of a back and forth that way. Pierre was great about knowing exactly what he wanted and how he wanted that performance to be. But then having the talent that we had, they would also have the room and the comfort to try it a different way. And then do they come in for a few days and then they're done? Or do they record a little bit and then you guys work it and then they come back and yes. record some more? I got to tell you, the most common conversation I had with Sam was going, okay, I know you've already recorded the scene. We've rewritten it. And so, you know, you get in and set the table virtually because obviously they don't have sets or props to play off of. It's just the script and you don't want to be super rigid, but you also want to give them context so they understand where they are because 
they don't know. They're just reading pages. Right. And I'm mm-hmm. sure for them, they can be like, what the hell is this even? It's like less information and less context than even a green screen stage because it's just a microphone and pages. But the number one thing that I do when I go to these recordings is that I intentionally don't look at the actor. I only look at the script and I judge the performance because I'm lining the script as the editor, almost like a script supervisor because I'm picking takes. And I find that if I watch the actor, they'll do a facial expression or something physical that I might fall in love with but isn't on the recording. And so you end up misjudging takes because you're Mm. basing on something that is never going to end up on the recording. It's funny because even then it's still in a vacuum. Yeah. You can choose something and then when you actually see it in context with the rest of the scene or with the other performers, it's still, that works so well when I heard it being recorded, but now it doesn't work in this context. Yeah, you have to go back to the cutting room and Listen to all the dailies. Listen to all the dailies. Well, I find that it's the same thing where on the set, sometimes the director will be, everybody loved that take and it was great. But then in the context of the scene, that's not the right take. That's universal across all editors. All editors have that experience, (laughs) I think. The music is brilliant. It has so much energy and it's great. It even seemed sometimes that you guys were cutting to the music Well, yeah, it's interesting. There's what they used to call needle drops, you know, songs. And there's what our composer Daniel Pemberton wrote. And this movie was wonderful because from the very beginning, the music choices were in the DNA of the pitch. You know, Pierre has really great taste in music. Like the song that the gang listens to on the back half of the bank heist is from a band called Can't Stop, Won't Stop, which Pierre dug. And so that was designed from the beginning. So I really did cut a lot of what happened in the back half of that chase to the song. We actually got Craig Robinson to sing along with it. You know, and then when the guys are setting up that gala heist to steal the Golden Dolphin, we had a a piece of music from the Black Keys. And because it's animation and it hadn't been locked, we were in layout at that point. I really did have the chance to say, we need to make this shot shorter. So we really were able to shape the scene to the song and then of course piranha song that he sings it's <laughs> great was written by daniel pemberton and a writing partner and then anthony worked his magic into it but that leads us to daniel pemberton oh my gosh that guy is talented i worked so differently with him than i have with any other composer i've ever worked with what he would do is he would really early on i would say a year and a half ago He came on and he said, I've watched your cut of the movie and I've read the script. And he said, I've got ideas for themes and jams and tone things that I don't have specific scenes for. I'm going to just give it to you. You place Mm. it into the film as if you were placing songs from other movies. And then once you kind of like the vibe and where it's going, I'll take it back from you and then I'll write it properly for that scene. And it was so freeing to be able to hear a song and go, oh, you know what? This would work great. The back half of the second act, or this would be great for a car chase, or this would be great for a heisty vibe. And there were amazing pieces of music that we ended up not even using in the film, which breaks my heart. It was an embarrassment of riches. I'm so glad that you're speaking to this because I've had that opportunity on a few films where 
rather than just put in temp music, you have the composer create a few themes indicative of what they think is the movie. And it is just incredibly freeing and it helps inspire the cut so much to play with some of that stuff and know it will be changed, but the essence of it is this. And so you really get a sense of the oh, feel yeah. of the scene when it comes to music. Completely, completely. And talk about the unlimited nature of, because you can put any song in the movie, you're going to try every song in the movie. <laughs> and Jesse, Jesse ended up really working the, um, I'm trying to think of how to describe it without spoiling the film. There's another car chase in the third act that is amazing. And we had the darndest time, which by the way, I'm saying this in case there are kids in the car. I would swear <laughs> if the, if I didn't think kids were in the car listening right now. Jesse, would you talk about how many different pieces of music you tried in that scene? Attack of the guinea pigs, I think I'd describe it. No, I think that, I think that <laughs> <Yeah>. is correct. <laughs> I, I think Pierre and Damon, they knew that they wanted a needle drop, but we just couldn't find something that fit the tone and fit the idea and fit the energy. And oh my goodness, it had to be, without exaggerating, over 75 different songs you that think? sounds about right oh. it was wow. enormous we would just get huge dumps from the music department how about this how about this how about this and would you try all of those yeah every time you would get a giant dump of songs you could just see the blood drain from jesse's face <laughs> because jesse you tried everything almost oh, yeah. without exception yeah we we did we would watch the scene with one song and then we'd watch it again with a different song and especially when we were in boards, all the songs we would try would influence the pacing of that scene. You couldn't just lay it on top. So sometimes you were changing the cut in order to give it its day in court. Every single time I would see Jesse do all those passes, I would think there is a special place in heaven for Jesse Averna <laughs> for going through and doing all of that. Or a special place in hell during that time. A special place in hell, which is why we get paid every week. It does kind of point to something that was really special about this project for me, is that there was this attitude of, let's hear your ideas. Let's hear what you think. And that went with the director saying like, I'm interested what your take is on this and how you would change it or if it's working or if it's cringy, whatever. And same thing with John. We'd work on scenes and he'd want to hear my critique and he would critique what I was doing. And it was just this constant, I guess the word is safe, <laughs> place where we could just constantly better it. You know, let's try it. Let's just build it. Let's try it. Let's see if it works. If it doesn't, that's fine. Well, safe places are so important to make you as creative as you possibly can be. Yes. And yeah, I, yeah, I find that when you feel like you're going to be judged, you're not sharing all the ideas that you might have. And sometimes ideas, they might not be right, but they inspire yeah. other ideas. So yeah, right. it's great to feel free. And there was an environment where it wasn't just, no, there's one right way to do it. It was more, let's throw ingredients. Let's make it better. Yeah. And I think that all came directly from Pierre Parafil, our director, yeah. because he yeah. came from being an animator. And so he was used to working in a team even though he was a, a first-time feature director, he had a tremendous maturity in terms of knowing what he wanted, but also soliciting from the rest of us on the crew. He did the best thing in the world when he would say no, because not everything we pitched is brilliant, hard to believe, but it's true. He had the ability to say, you know what, I get what you're pitching. I, you know, Thank you for saying that. No, 
but here's why. And so you were able to shape future pitches based on having more information, which is just what you really crave in a director, a point of view. I'd say that attitude was in the editing room with John. John was great about soliciting opinions from people who are different than him, ladies that we had on the film. How does this hit you? It probably hits you different than it hits me. And so making sure to always be conscious that the more voices we have, the more opinions, the better it's going to be. The truth is, it is lovely to have as diverse a cutting room as possible. We really made an effort to try and do 50-50 men and women. We had Christine Haslett, our associate editor, and Laura Minto and Kat, our editorial supervisor. The the guys side, you had Jesse and me and Tom Scott. It was really important because as a male identifying person, you you end up going, well, I think that this seems fair. But the truth is, is that I only have half the experiences. I have no idea what it's like to be a woman. And I would be stupid to try and put forward, yeah, a female character would or wouldn't do this. So I was always checking in with the women on the crew to say, what do you think? Is this cringy? Laura Minto, actually, there was... Both Zazie Beats and Laura Minto were key in helping us crack the Diane Foxington character on our film because she was a little uh, a little underdeveloped as originally conceived, kind of school teacher, finger waggy. And we were recording a scene where Wolf thinks that she's going to throw him in jail and she doesn't and it surprises him. And it felt a little bit too hard, an unbelievable turn. And so Laura was recording the scratch voices as Diane and she just did an improv where she said, believe it or not, I'm rooting for you. And mm. as soon as she did that, it was like, I felt this sense in my soul where I was like, oh my gosh, I see this character for the first time, I would have never been able to realize that that's what was needed in the moment. I immediately called up Pierre and said, oh my God, I think we figured the key phrase to do the character turn there. I have to say that that line does really give you a sense of who this Foxington character is. And when you say that, I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's it. And that would have never happened if I was really rigid and felt like I'm only interested in the opinions of the key people on the film. That would be so stupid of me. Yeah, There was a very self-assuredness of the filmmakers on this. And when I saw that Pierre, this is his first feature, I was surprised. It felt so mature Mm. and the vision was so distinct. It felt like any great live action caper. And I thought you guys did a brilliant job. Wow. Well, first of all, thank you. That is a really lovely thing to say. I think that Pierre was really smart in two ways. Number one, he got his break on a film that he knew in his bones how to direct. Number two, he knew what he didn't know, which I think is really unusual for a first-time director. You know, because I think first-time directors that sometimes feel like they have a lot to prove and they're like, I want to make sure I'm the one who makes all the decisions. Mm. Pierre leaned really heavily on all his department heads, myself, Todd, our cinematographer, J.P. Sands, the head of animation. And I think that what really comes across as being self-assured is, is that he made great choices, you know, because obviously you can get swamped if you solicit opinions and then you have so many different points of view that he was able to thread the needle of getting the best from both Jesse and I, but also making sure that his vision ended up on the screen. It's really impressive. 
he had the confidence to hear ideas from everyone on the project. Despite their role, he made time and had heart to be able to allow people to express concerns or to throw up other ideas. But yeah, to then synthesize it and make it his clear vision for the film. But there was never some barrier or wall of, I know better mentality. Mm. He very much made it an inclusive environment and said, yeah, here's what we're doing. But if you can think of something different or if it helps get us to another idea, then let's talk about it. Let's do it. That's great. Yeah. And there were so many interesting editorial choices. Like when you have the plans to steal the Golden Dolphin Award, you go to the split screens Mm. where you went from fast motion to slow-mo or did some interesting transitions. Oh, yeah. Well, number one, I am an enormous fan of the high genre. I have seen more crime films, specifically L.A. crime films, than just about any other genre in the world. So for me, it's like growing up cooking Italian food your whole life. Like you know what should be in a ravioli and what shouldn't, just by osmosis. Then getting paired with Matt Flynn, one of our main storyboard artists, he also loves crime films. And so he was the one that pitched the idea of doing the split screens. And then I really made sure in talking to Pierre that every single heist had to feel different. Otherwise, the audience would get bored and it would feel repetitious. The bank heist should be like a muscular baby driver style, Paul Matchless, ACE style cut thing. But then when you go into... The dolphin heist, it should be more slick. And so the speed ramps came from not only seeing it in other heist films, but just I didn't want to make the audience watch the entire Steadicam shot. And so I would speed things up just for economy. And it allowed me to pick the pieces that I wanted to show because our layout artist would provide enormous one minute long shots. And then I was able to do speed ramps in the Avid because he had shot it like a live action film. And those speed ramps are so fun. They are. I think one of the catches with it though, was to not make it a gimmick. Mm. So it was finding the right amount and when, and there always had to be a story reason. You want to make sure that it isn't flash for flash's sake. You want it to all feel organic to the moment. Exactly. And different. So you understand who's driving the scene. That sequence when we go into the Golden Dolphin and Wolf is talking about the heist. In the original version of that, he outlined the heist ahead of time and then you saw it unfold. And as I was cutting it, it was just laying there because you told the audience what was going to happen and then you showed the audience what was going to happen. And it was super boring. That's when I realized as he starts talking about how the heist was going to go down, we would jump into the heist. And so he's describing it as it's actually happening. And that also allowed us to jump forward in time and be a bit more aggressive and upcut. Well, speaking about time, you guys did play a lot with time. You would have these flash forwards and you'd have these flashbacks. So the past and the present are being mixed. Yeah, well, there's a reason there aren't many heist movies for kids because it's a con going on and you think it's one way, but something else is actually happening behind the scenes. And so you run the risk of over explaining things or making things too linear. So we made the decision to go nonlinear with time because that is absolutely in the genre. And we wanted to stay true to that. And we just made sure to show the film to actual eight, nine-year-olds. And you know, the thing that always amazes me is just 
how much kids get what's going on. Yeah, they're very sophisticated viewers. They are, yeah. It's tremendous. Jesse, did you use your kids as a, a focus group? Oh, constantly, without a doubt. I have a six-year-old and nine-year-old, and my six-year-old was four when we started. So he's... He's 17 now. (laughs) That guy's has been a big part of his life. (laughs) It's fun because they both react to different things. Like my son loves piranha because he brings flatulence to the film. (laughs) (laughs) The scatological humor is always good (laughs) for five-year-olds. Yeah. And instantly my daughter hooked into Diane and that became my North Star while I was working on it from home to show her things and to make sure that we were making a character that she could look up to, that she could fantasize to be. Sure. She's such a cool character ultimately because, spoiler alert, she is the greatest of the bad guys. Mm -hmm. And she's also this cool ninja butt-kicking awesome fighter and something that i'm really proud of with that character is that she is not just a device for wolf like she's not there just to help arc wolf like she has her own fleshed out identity she's a fantastic character and the performance is just really really great oh yeah I love all the clever transitions that you guys created, like the toilet door going to the computer hard drive or the moon transition on Wolf's face or the wave revealing the jail. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked about this. About five or six years ago, there was a YouTube video from a channel called Every Frame of Painting by Tony Zhou, who did a thing all about the comic transition storytelling of Edgar Wright. And if you haven't seen this, stop listening to the podcast. And it made the case for the difference between a well-designed comedy and a seriously boring comedy is really in thinking through the transitions. Mm. And in an animated movie, you're reworking the movie so much that transitions can kind of fall in between the cracks. So I decided... From the beginning, we had to pay attention to transitions. That spinning thing, we had no transition. It was just a straight cut. And I was sitting with Todd, our cinematographer, and Pierre, and we were watching it, and it just felt clunky because it was a fairly similar composition, cut to cut. And I was like, no, 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 we got to do better. And then I thought, ooh, 3D warp tool time. And then I did a spin on it. And then I said, hey, Todd, can you do this with the camera, actually spin the camera? And he was like, oh, yeah, I'll definitely match it. And we lined up the computer ports and we put it in and we were like, oh, yeah, here we go. That really became the first serious transition that we had in the film. And everything else kind of grew out of that. But it was all because we wanted to build it into the film from day one. Mm. I think they do play into the nonlinear aspect of the movie too. So instead of feeling like this and then that and then this, those transitions mix it together. Like, oh, this is happening at the same time. Or, okay, now we're jumping time to go here. Yeah. What was the choice to have all the background characters be human and all the main characters, except for the police chief, be animals? Oh, man. That's a really good question. Pierre wanted the animals to be embodiments of our fears of specific archetypal animals. Mm. You know, a shark in and of itself is not a weapon. It's our fear of sporadic attacks that make them terrifying. And so for Pierre, it was really about fear. For me, 
I tended to think if a character is an animal, it means they're on the moral continuum. They could be good or they could be bad. And I tended to think of all the human characters as being pretty set in their good or bad. Whereas animals, they're more flexible. They could be bad or they could be good. But why then make the police chief a human? Ah, well, if you follow my theory, it's because she is set as a police chief. She's good and she's not morally flexible. She's always going to be on the side of good. Interesting. Well, I mean, the newscaster does say you should always judge a book by its cover and all stereotypes have been affirmed. Absolutely. (laughs) That line I actually think might be my favorite line in the movie. The first time I cut that, I played it completely on the newscaster's face. And then I realized that what I really wanted to say is I really wanted to see how Diane, who was in the scene, was reacting to that. And so Mm. I start the line and then I cut to Diane reacting to it because you knew that she was like, I've spent my entire life being judged this way. And this is so obnoxious. And you don't know yet that that's right. why she would be reacting that way. You assume that it's because she had faith in Wolf's ability to change and that she was rooting for him. But then you find out that this has something to do with her too. Yeah. You guys also have your characters breaking the fourth wall, talking to the camera. Tell me about that choice. The idea is, is that in the original books by Aaron Blaby, Wolf is breaking the fourth wall and talking to the viewer from the beginning. And so it was Mm. important for Pierre to make sure that we kept that feeling from the books. But as with a lot of fourth wall breaks, you kind of have to use it sparingly. You can't do it through the whole film unless you're Mm -hmm. Deadpool. But that's kind of his thing. So we used it pretty heavily at the beginning and then again at the end. It was like cooking with sugar. You don't want to overdo it because the dish becomes overly sweet. Sure. During the attack of the guinea pigs, there were some interesting jump zooms where, you know, you just have these quick punch-ins. And I imagine that it wasn't originally designed that way and that you guys added some. You know, it was kind of a back and forth, especially in layout, because there was just so many ways to shoot that scene. Todd delivered what felt like dailies that we, we had choices for everything. And so it, it kind of became, like you said, economy, but also to heighten the way that they were feeling. Yeah. And I remember Pierre at the beginning of the film used references from the 70s when they would actually literally use zoom lenses. To pop in. Yeah, to pop in. And he really wanted that to be part of the language of the film. Since you're speaking about the guinea pig sequence, can you talk a little bit about some of the challenges of that sequence? Yeah, I think the biggest challenge was a matter of scope. The scene's doing two things. It's huge in terms of scale. It's this long freeway with a gigantic foe, you know, all of these guinea pigs. But then the other side of it, it's kind of this delicate moment between Snake and Wolf, where Snake realizes, even though he's done something that he thinks should end a friendship, that Wolf is coming to him and apologizing and saying, even though I've done wrong, I admit that and I can't live without you. So you're dealing with this really heartfelt emotional moment, you know, that has to create a turn in one of our main characters. But then at the same time, you have this epic Mm -hmm. third act. So threading between the two was this constant back and forth. I can imagine. So different board artists took different swipes at it. You know, one was great with the action side of it, and then another was amazing with the intimacy. 
Yeah, it's a really good point in terms of storyboard artists, because you'll, you might have a storyboard artist that specializes in action style drawing, and then yeah. you'll have another storyboard artist that really specializes in comedy or intimate moments. And you might have a storyboard artist that can draw complete camera moves, and you'll have another board artist that will put everything on a blank background, but is hilarious. Mm. So you end up having to recognize quickly what the storyboard artist's strength is and make sure you lean into that. And so it's a casting thing, just in the same way you cast a movie or you're casting scenes with the artists who are working on it. Right. That's fascinating. And it's up to Jesse to make sure to integrate those so it feels like a coherent scene. And that's one of the gifts of, I think, a really good animation editor like Jesse. Thank you, John. Uh, What were the biggest challenges on the film? The creative challenge that I found was making sure that we weren't making little vignettes that played awesome, but when you strung them together, didn't add up to much. It was really important to make sure that Diane felt like a three-dimensional character. And as Jesse points out, not just a foil who exists only to serve the male main character. And so, so it was making sure that every character got serviced because this is an ensemble cast. If you lean too heavily on one character, you starve the oxygen to the other character. So it was really striking the balance of making sure that they felt like a family and that everyone got their moment. That was, I think, probably the biggest challenge of the film. The second biggest challenge of the film was staying connected with the people I was working with during lockdown. Because when we went into lockdown, we instantly went from seeing each other all the time and being in the room and being able to grab someone and bringing them in and then work with a storyboard artist to fix whatever wasn't working or kind of brainstorm things to all of us being in our houses and not and feeling disconnected. For me... The most challenging was the fact that the job started for me during the pandemic. Mm. So I started in April 2020. So two weeks after the epidemic had hit. And I had visited the studio and met the team during my interview, but I really didn't get to see them again until very recently. So my Mm. entire experience on the project was virtual, all Zoom, a new film with a new team at a new studio. And you and John had not worked together before, is that correct? We had not, no. Oh, wow. So there's a little bit of a learning curve there, too. Definitely, yeah. And it was nice because we really developed a shorthand pretty quickly. And honestly, I'm, I'm grateful to have worked with this team and to have had the time with family while working from home, even though it had challenges. But yeah, it was a very unique project. So... How did you get a handle on making sure that there was continuity between you and John? That's a great question. Where we were in the process, he would be working with the directors, and then I would also be working with the directors, definitely all under John's lead. But there was a lot of hopping and bouncing around and you know, watching each other's work and giving notes to each other. And you were working on what system to be able to work remotely? Evercast. Evercast. And it was incredible. It's funny because it was impossible working from home until it wasn't, (laughs) until we had to do it. And Evercast proved that we were able to work fairly seamlessly. In a way, it had advantages because if we needed to jump in on something, we didn't have to round everyone up. Mm -hmm. You could really do it at any time if it was early or late. That's great. I just wanted to say I loved the movie. I thought you guys did a fantastic job, and I'm so happy that you guys gave me a chance to speak to you today. Oh, Glenn, thank you, man. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. If you enjoyed this podcast, 
please subscribe. We really appreciate it. Welcome to the first day of the rest of your best life. Look, it's a cat stuck in a tree. What does your heart tell you to do? A good person would smack it, skin it, stab it, saute it. It's so obvious. I want you to save it. Oh, right, right. right. Here it is. <laughs> <laughs>